Jewish Education and Media is pleased to present L'Chaim, a program that highlights the people, issues, and events of importance to the Jewish community. Now here is your host, Rabbi Mark Golub. I'm Mark Golub, and I want to read to you two short sentences from an extraordinary book an important book that relives the story of the most extraordinary figure on the world Jewish stage today, who was told as he was about to begin nine long years in prison, that he was at the very center of the Jewish world, influencing the entire Jewish world, a fact of his life which has remained true to this day. Here are the two short sentences from this beautifully written book. Jews don't swim alone. When you belong to the Jewish people, you get a family. I have to tell you, I get chills, I tear up every time I read those two lines, even now. Jews don't swim alone. When you belong to the Jewish people, you get a family. If you're ever asked, what does it mean to be a Jew? Just quote those lines. We are a family. And to borrow a phrase, all the rest is commentary. Now go study and learn the magnificence of Jewish history, Jewish peoplehood, and the love of Torah and the Jewish tradition, which is the energizing force that drives the Jewish people to transcend and survive and to repeatedly rise again, as if fulfilling the vision of the prophet Ezekiel, that the valley of dry bones will come to life again. And the man who wrote these words is a living testament to the truth of Jewish rebirth and transcendence. From the time I started doing L'chaim in 1979, when Eli Wiesel and Abba Ibn before him, Zichronam Levracha, may their memories be an enduring blessing. When they were once the two people the American Jewish community wanted to hear from most, each epitomizing the best of Jewish identity. They were each beloved. Sadly, they are no longer with us. And the person who now is, in many, many ways, the most beloved figure on the world you were seeing, whom American Jews want to hear from most, is the man who wrote these words, Jews don't swim alone. He began his public life at the age of 25 as a refusenik, and then a dissident and human rights advocate as a colleague of Andrei Sakharov. And then as a political prisoner for nine long years to one day fulfill his dream of Aliyah, to reunite with his bride Avital, whom he had not seen since the day after his wedding, the first Jewish wedding incidentally he had ever attended, to go on to become the head of the new immigrants party in Israel, a Knesset member, 
a cabinet minister in four Israeli governments, and then for nine years to head the Jewish Agency for Israel. He is now the chairman of ISGAP, Charles Small's Institute for the Study of Global Anti-Semitism and Policy, reflecting his current concern with the rise of anti-Semitism, especially as it's reflected in anti-Israel sentiment in the halls of academia. Of course, I am speaking of Natan Sharansky, who has written a beautiful, moving, thought-provoking memoir in collaboration with one of World Jewry's foremost Zionist thinkers, lecturers, and writers, Gil Troy. The book is entitled Never Alone, Prison, Politics, and My People. What an honor it is to welcome to L'Chaim and JBS, a beloved hero of contemporary Jewish life, Natan Sharansky. Natan Mazaltov on a fabulous book, Never Alone. And it is an enormous pleasure for me to have you joining us on L'Chaim. Thank you so very much. Thank you for inviting me. And it's also a big pleasure for me to join you from Jerusalem. That is lovely. So, you know, I read the book and I said to myself, every page, every new idea, could be a Lachanian program in and of itself. And, and I just want to ask you a million questions, but I want to begin by referencing something else you wrote. You tell the story of the time you were in Moscow and you were writing a letter that you hoped would get to scoop Jack, Senator Henry Jackson. And you were going to smuggle this letter out of the former Soviet Union with the help of an American citizen, just a woman who was visiting and cared about you and your cause. And at one point you expressed your gratitude and she said to you, no, you're doing me a favor. You're letting us make Jewish history together. And I hope you understand that the feeling that was expressed by that American woman in that one moment when you were a very young person is the same feeling all of us throughout America had during the time of the Soviet Jewry movement. And it is how we feel about you to this very day. And I don't mean to embarrass you but I do want you to understand that that moment you describe so beautifully in your book, Never Alone, represents something that exists to this day and it reflects on you, it reflects on your wife, Avital, and the contribution you continue to make in so many ways for world Jewry as a whole and for the state of Israel. So Yasha Korach again, and. Again, I just wanted you to hear me say something that I know I'm saying on behalf of not only American Jewry, but world Jewry. So thank you, Natan. So you write in your book, growing up Jewish in the Soviet Union offered nothing positive. I want you to describe for our audience, how did you find Jewishness in the former Soviet Union? 
Well, first of all, you have to understand what it means growing up Jewish. There was nothing Jewish in my life. No holidays, no tradition, no language, uh, no faith, no place where you can uh, get to learn about tradition or where you can uh, learn the language, no place where you can buy book to learn the language, no bar mitzvah, no brit villa. There was only one Jewish thing, anti-Semitism. You, uh, you face anti-Semitism in the street and you're discussing the anti-Semitic policy, discrimination policy of the authorities almost every evening with your family. And the message of your parents is very clear. Because you're a Jew, you have to be number one in your profession, in your studies, in your class, in physics, mathematics, chess, music, doesn't matter. But uh, that is the way of our Jewish survival. So Jew is like a disease that you were born with. It's written in the idea of your parents, the word Jew. And so, you know, you it's kind of cancer or something that you have to know how to deal with it. You were born with this. You have to deal with this. And so there is no, no nothing Jewish, no identity, and of course, no freedom. And you know that very well from the very early age that you should not discuss what you're discussing in the family. You should not discuss publicly. Mm -hmm. And whether you would want to fight against this life, no, because there are no values except value of physical survival, how to succeed in spite of those restrictions. So as you're growing up, and again, you describe this in your book, but I want you to talk about it now. As you're growing up, at, did you resent being Jewish? Well, uh, uh, I have to say that my parents were wise enough to, to, to remind me each time that you don't have to be uh, ashamed of being Jewish. And uh, the statue of David winning, uh, uh, winning Goliath was in our home, but that was the only piece which could uh, give an opportunity to our father to tell us something about the history. But they were saying it more in order to protect us from complexes of inferiority or something. Uh, in fact, I would say most of the Jews that I knew, uh, absolutely assimilated like me, and the parents, if they could write in the idea of their children to bribe police or something and to write uh, Russian, mm -hmm. Ukrainian, German, Armenian, doesn't matter what, there are 150 different nationalities. But when somebody says he has fifth line problem, fifth line, it's the line, the ID where, of nationality. Fifth line problem, it means only one nationality, uh, uh, Jew. So no, uh, I, I, yeah, well, I would say that I was unlucky uh, being bored with this fifth line problem. I understand. Uh, but uh, at the same time, the parents were, as I said, wise enough to make sure that you will not feel yourself in few, uh, some kind of complex inferiority. Okay, I want you to talk a little bit about, your parents were Ida and Boris. And yeah. they come into the story quite a bit, but you never describe what they were like. 
Tell me who, who in the, your parents had to be also unusual people. And you also had a, a, a brother, an older brother. But I want to know, what was it, who were Ida and Boris to you? What were they like? Yeah. Uh, Jews from Odessa, uh, from uh, then in the Soviet Union, after the revolution, everybody had to belong to class or class of enemies or class of proletarians, they were petty bourgeois. What means that their origin was suspicious in the lies in the eyes of authorities. And uh, uh, at the same time, they did have hope uh, after the revolution that finally anti-Semitism will disappear and now there'll be kind of just society. And this illusion continued for a few years, and then abruptly it was destroyed and they understood that they have to look for the ways to survive under this very unpleasant regime. Their life was rather dramatic and tragic. We found out about many of the losses which they had to face uh, in their life uh, later, when it was permitted already to to speak about Shoah and you find out about the many relatives who were killed in the Shoah. And you find out about our relatives who were arrested by Stalin. And you find out about those years when they, uh, in the evening was, uh, didn't know if they'll wake up in this room or, or will be arrested during the night because arrests in the Stalin's times were during the night. And my father was journalist, my mother was economists, they had no children, and then there was a war against Nazis, and my father volunteered and fought and went from uh, Caucasus to Vienna for four years of struggle. When he comes back home, suddenly, one after another, there are two boys are born, but they already had no hope that there'll be boys. And when I was born, my grandfather, uh, the last Jew connected to the tradition in our family wanted uh, that I'll be called in the name of his father, Natan. But in 1948, the highest moment of anti-Semitic campaigns of Stalin, uh, my parents are afraid to give such a Jewish name. They call me Anatoly and they tell to my grandfather that that's uh, a Russian version of Natan. So he calls me Natanchik and, uh, and they call me Anatoly and that continues until the, those days of when I became Zionist activist and I decided to go back to my original name. Now, with all this, we had a lot, a lot of love in our family. It was like hostile world with a lot of suffering, but inside the family, they're happy. They have these two small boys, finally. And we, we were, we, there was a lot of love. Mm -hmm. And no doubt that later, when hard days came, this love in the family gave me a lot of strength and, and confidence. And what is very important to say, and I think I'm writing about it in the book, when I was at the age of five, my mother taught me to play chess. Yeah. And she told, she told me, uh, that is the world where you'll be free, always free. The, the world of free thought. You can fly, you can do whatever you want. And that's how I felt that finally I found the world where I can think without any limits, where I will not be pu punished 
for my descent, where, where I can sacrifice things in order to gain something. So that was my first big escape from this totalitarian atmosphere of the Soviet Union, it was chess. And that was like the big present of my mother to me. That is lovely. Well, you describe how hard communism was on your parents, and you also describe how at one point your, your father sort of embraced communism and then he rejects it. And you talk about how hard it was and you could see it on their face. In general, Natan, were your parents happy people or bitter people? I think they uh, were very optimistic people. They're, that's what is Jewish optimism? What is Jewish humor and how you are laughing in the most tragic situations? That I got from uh, my parents. So to say that I had nothing Jewish, it's, it's wrong. I had a Jewish family and, they, and it's, it's a lot. And Odessa Jewish family, for those who are not from the former Soviet Union, don't say that Odessa, that was the whole Jewish world of humor, of satire, of jokes, of different expressions. So all this they took, they took through their life in spite of all these hardships. So inside the family, we, we were small, happy, uh, well, but very concerned about what happens the moment you look out of, uh, of this small world. And so you have to be very careful and very cautious. And again, all the time to remember that the way for us Jews to survive, to be the best in your profession. That's how I lived until 1967. Okay. By the way, I feel that the way you were forced to live physically was also hard on you and your family. Describe the home you grew up in. Well, uh, it was a typical apartment, a communal apartment. So there were three families. Each family had like one and a half room and one toilet and one uh, bathroom and so the, uh, one kitchen. And so there are lines from the morning uh, to the toilet and to wash your hands before you go to work. And uh, the uh, permanent debates in the kitchen, who is responsible to, to clean today and so on. On, one, on the other hand, the, all the life, uh, both parents are working and working uh, very hard. Uh, but at the same time, they have to think how to buy in the morning milk for the children because the milk will be in the shop only from seven to eight. And the, the line for the milk starts like at six in the morning because uh, after eight, there will be no more milk. And then how to take the other product. So everything, physically, everything was a problem. Mm -hmm. But top of this, I was five years old when Stalin died. And my father explains me to the five year old boy and to my seven years old uh, brother that it is very good for us that Stalin died, that we were, in, as Jews, we were in big danger. Uh, and but so we'll have to remember all our life that miracle happened in the, the moment of big danger. We didn't know about uh, doctor's plot and the other anti-Semitic awful things which were happening at this moment. But uh, we understood from our father that we are in danger, and now it's good that Stalin died. But he added, "Don't say to anybody, do what everybody does." Yes. And I go back to kindergarten, and I sing with all the children some songs about great son of all the people, Stalin. And they cry together with all the children about death of Stalin. 
and I have no idea who of the children is really crying and who is crying like me. Uh, so that is a typical life of Soviet citizen that our parents instructed us to, to behave, that there are this truth, which is only for the family, which is only for very uh, narrow circle. I you know, our neighbors, uh, apartment should not hear it. Yes. Uh, uh, that was a typical life of Soviet loyal citizen. Now, Tanya, how many children do you and Avital have? Well, uh, we have two daughters and seven grandchildren. We want to have 12 children when we got married, but because we spent 12 years for uh, uh, in vain, so lost them, so that's what we got, but uh, so... Uh, uh, but when the first daughter was born, my mother sent her picture to the head of my prison because that was the sign of our victory. And now we are counting our grandchildren. So hopefully we'll reach the level of the grandchildren, what we wanted to reach with our children. Okay, this is the last question I have on this theme of you and your childhood. I want you to give thought and then try to compare for me the, child, the childhood your children have growing up in Israel with the childhood you and your brother Leonid had and was, you know, when a child grows up, whatever his life is, he thinks that's what life is. But again, you're now a father and a grandfather. You've raised children in freedom in Israel. How would you contrast the kind of childhood you had with the childhood your children and then your grandchildren have? Well, it's strange to try to, to compare because uh, our children grow in a very secure atmosphere of their identity. They are part of the really big family and the big, uh, big Jewish family and Jewish state and they feel themselves very Protected, and they know that uh, uh, that uh, nobody can take it from us, and they're also free. They can uh, say what they think and do whatever they want. It's very different type of mentality, uh, but also very different type of challenge. They grow with grew without knowing or uh, without feeling that freedom is something to fight for. Mm -hmm. uh, without knowing what uh, what is double thing, without knowing uh, what is the evil of communism, we did spend quite a lot of time to give them a feeling what it was the struggle of their parents. And I believe that it's one of the big losses of the uh, of the, all those Jewish activists, tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of American Jews who were fighting for twenty years for our release. They didn't tell, many of them didn't tell to their own children the story of their struggle. Forget about me and my wife, but about their struggle, because it is so important not to take for granted seeing the world in which you live. And that's why I'm very proud of the fact that Avital and I did invest in educating our children about our own family story and about the story of our generation's struggle for our freedom, because I believe that it is very important that our children and grandchildren enjoying this life in the free world will be always 
uh, be able to compare and to appreciate things that we have. That was beautifully said. All right, so it turns out you're very bright, you do well in math and science, and you get into the Moscow Institute of Physics and Technology. And it is there, I believe you said it was in, during the, the, your first final exam session, that in 1967, the Six Day War occurs, and that had a profound impact upon you and many other Jews who were living in the Soviet Union. Describe what that experience was like for you. Yes. Well, it's important to understand, it's not that I was very enthusiastic about the victory of Israel. I was, by the way, enthusiastic because Soviet Union was accumulated. And as a, a loyal Soviet double thinker, I hated the system. And I, as many others, was very uh, glad that Soviet Union accumulated. Of course, I couldn't say it publicly. Publicly, there was a lot of meetings of condemnation of the Israeli aggressor. But to see that Soviet Union, which spent a lot of money and a lot of uh, 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 weapons and uh, uh, a lot of pressure on uh, Egypt and Syria. That is your time to defeat uh, Israel. And they even already started celebrating the victory of the progressive Arab countries over the uh, Zionist imperialist agent of American imperialism, Israel. And suddenly such the accumulation. So it was good, but to say that it was more important than exams which I was passing, no, I had my own life. Yes, but very, really, in, in a few weeks, you see that everybody, those who love you, those who hate you, your enemies uh, or your friends, they look at you and say you with amazement, how you guys did it. They don't say, well, maybe you, because you're Jewish, maybe you know something that we don't know. No, they say, how you did it. I, in the beginning, you don't know whether to be concerned that maybe I look like non-loyal to Soviet regime. Uh, but then you think, why they connect me so intimately with the Jewish state? And uh, that's when I decided that I have to, to learn more, to understand this connection. And that's when I started reading from the books which were brought by American tourists about ourselves. And suddenly you read and you understand that with some twist of your mind, uh, you can belong to very different history, not to the history of a Soviet regime, which begins from 1917, and then all these repressions and persecutions and uh, uh, awful things. But with the exodus from Egypt, and then it continues through thousand years, it's such an exciting history, to this exodus of Leonuris, the book which we were reading the whole night and then we're giving to the other family. We also don't want to keep such a book at home, not that the KGB will not find. But second, it's the influence of this book. Suddenly you discover for yourself how these Russian Jews did something in uh, uh, built this Jewish state against all the odds and how people of your age were making history. And then you look at this, soldiers near the uh, uh, liberators of Jerusalem, near the Kotel, and their look, their enthusiasm. And you understand they are 20 years old. That's exactly your age. And while they're making history, they're part of this unbelievable history, 
your concern mainly how to pass this exam good in order, in spite of being Jewish, you can make your academical career. So there is something much bigger in this world being Jewish than uh, to be the best in physics or mathematics. And so you discover the history. And then like, you discover this Jewish family, this, all these Jews who are coming from Miami, from New York, from Paris, from Toronto. And they're saying, oh, your father is from Odessa. And my father is from Odessa. We are family. You find out they are all one family. They, they feel like this. And it depends on, on you if you decide it is your family. And of course, the state of Israel, which is ready to send the airplanes to the end of the world to help you. That's when you discover your identity. And that doesn't happen in one day, it's a process, but it gives you more and more the desire to, to stop this life of double thinker and to say publicly what you really think. And the first phrase which you will say later publicly will be a simple phrase that I don't want to live here, I want to go to Israel. And the moment you say it publicly, your, life, your career is ruined, you are fired from your work, uh, you can be searched, your house can be searched, you can be called for interrogation, some of your friends will uh, ask you to take uh, to cross their name out from your telephone book in order not to be interrogated. But you stop being double thinker, you become a free person. You have some values to fight for. That's how very different life, the life of a free person and proud Jew begins. You know, when you describe how much you came to appreciate what Jewish people were, Jewish family, and the sense of being connected to a people have had a history for thousands of years and now they're doing something miraculous in Israel. And it, it has a profound effect upon you and changes your identity. You know, Natan, for most American Jews, first of all, we've never experienced a moment of hardship as you did when you were growing up in the former Soviet Union. And in some way, American Jews don't have your appreciation for what it means to be connected to Jewish peoplehood. And I know that this is something you are concerned with and you've devoted much of your life to this, but I want you to speak about that for one moment. The extent to which, what would you say to American Jews who have been a, had a very privileged, lovely, comfortable life, as opposed to the life you've had, and the extent to which they very often are disconnected from Jewish people and Jewish family? First of all, I have to say it all depends on the family. Uh, we are very quick in accusing this young generation of Jews, and when parents start complaining me, that how they now went to the university and they, they how, how we can protect them in the university from this brainwashing which is happening there. And I asked them, and what you were doing for the first 18 years that they lived in the family? Did you give them this feeling of the pride, the feeling of the meaningful uh, life? It's, uh, after all, it's, you don't have to live in the hardships to realize how good is the life of meaning. You, you can simply live 
uh, a shallow life without any ideals, uh, life as uh, uh, John Lennon described, imagine the world where there'll be no God, no, no borders, no governments, nothing to die for. And then you find out that there is nothing to die for, there is nothing to live for. It's, the life is so superficial, it's so smooth, it's so non-exciting. And in fact, what is the birthright? Uh, is the invention of American Jews concerned about their children uh, not being, not feeling the connection with their Jewish family. And they were sending them, I described the, describe the book in details how this idea was born and how it had to be defended in Israel and how it worked. And then now there are hundreds of thousands of young Jews who are coming for 10 days uh, to, to Israel and suddenly they are excited. And uh, what kind of brainwashing we can do them in Israel uh, in order they will change all the Jewish statistics after all. There is no brainwashing. Israel by itself is a good instrument to remind people that there is history. It's so easy to feel that there is history and that there is a family. And there is exciting reality of permanent debate about our Jewish problems and how these, our Jewish concepts and values and, and can influence on the world. So uh, there are ways to make uh, being Jewish interesting and exciting. But yes, it is a hard work as I just spoke about our daughters. We took it as a hard mission to give to our daughters this feeling of connection with the history. And I think that American Jews got this unique tool present. They were part of this, one of the most, if not the most successful uh, struggle of Jewish people since Paro. They defeated the most powerful dictatorship in the world. They brought freedom to millions of Jews. They changed all the demography and all the history of Jewish people. And they are not using it to, to give to their children the feeling of pride of belonging to their family. So before accusing young generation, think what we are doing in transition, how we are making sure that this feeling of uh, pride of belonging to this tradition going for centuries and thousands of years, uh, influencing on the world with the power of our ideas, how you transfer this knowledge to your children. By the way, when you were, when you were in your early 20s, did you think of yourself as a courageous person? Uh, no, uh, I didn't. Uh, well, uh, no, well, uh, no, yes and no. I, I did know that I like risk and uh, I could feel it in chess and it's, uh, it's a mother that I like taking risk. I like to, <coughs> to go to something unknown and to see. On the other hand, I was a double thinker. I, I, uh, I saw that there are people who are ready to raise their voice uh, criticizing Soviet regime. And I feeling full sympathy to these people, not ready to be one of them. So I think I felt like permanent moral pressure. That's why uh, the role of Sakharov in my personal life was so big when the number one scientist uh, in Soviet Union, the one who is at the top of that pyramid, uh, which I hope to, to go uh, to rise, 
he is at the top and he becomes dissident number one in the Soviet Union by saying that without freedom of thought, there'll be no real science, there'll be no real successful uh, uh, life of society. And uh, uh, that what was pressing me uh, very strongly. So after six day war, I would say it would help me to, to rediscover my identity. There was an example of Sakharov and some other dissidents, which pushed me to start fighting for, for our freedom, to not to be afraid to speak the truth. Okay. You describe very powerfully in your book, your decision to go to your employer and tell him that you wanted to leave the Soviet Union, you wanted to go join family in the former Soviet, in, uh, in Israel, and you knew that when you did that, you would be putting yourself at great risk, in addition to the fact that you'd be killing your career. And I was just wondering how that, how that struggle inside you, and you try to describe it in the book again. It, it wasn't a simple decision for you, and yet it was a decision you made to go and tell your boss, because he had to write that he you were I forget he had to write something for you. Yeah. But you remember you know what I'm talking about. Describe what it was like inside you at that moment. Yeah. Well, uh, uh, I think it says a lot about that reality and uh, our situation of us loyal Soviet Jews who decide to to fight for our right to go to Israel. Uh, the fact that. I had so many very dramatic decisions to make after this in my life. Uh, I am in prison, accused of high treason, and they proposed me, choose life and cooperate with us, or we will kill you. And nobody will know, know about your behavior, simply will be killed as a spy. And I have to choose uh, from their point of view death, but in fact, to, to remain a uh, free person. And there were many, uh, very faithful decisions which I had to make during my struggle. Nothing can be compared with this heavy burden, with uh, this need to mobilize all your forces in order to go to the, your boss and to do, ask for very simple bureaucratic procedures. Sympathetic boss, we have good relations. I have to ask him, give me a paper to the immigration authorities because I start this process of going to Israel and authorities deliberately, of course, demand from me to get uh, the simple notes that they know about it, the place where you work and the place where you live and you have to get permission from uh, your parents, uh, even if they are 70 years old and you're 50 years old. So it's deliberately to make everybody know that you betrayed uh, your country. So you have to start this bureaucratic process. You go to ask him for the paper. For me, to it meant now I'm crossing this line. Now I am abandoning everything what I built until now. My attempt to escape in the world of chess, my attempt to escape in the world of science, my attempt to build successful life in Soviet Union, that will be the end of it. Now I find myself in the other world and who knows what will be the world, how long I will be fighting, whether I'll, uh, build and succeed to build another life. And it, it was so difficult. It was it almost, this fear almost paralyzed me. I had for the first of the 
last time in my life to take special uh, pills for relaxation because I simply felt. Uh, so it, it, that it's funny now if you think what how difficult and dramatic your decisions about death and life that I had to take after this, but. The most difficult moment is the moment when you're crossing this line between double sink and descent. And that's real revolution in your life. Mm -hmm. And when I'm um, making this decision to cross this line, then a revolution in the society happens. Okay, beautifully said. So you describe how you become part of the refusedic movement and you end up, you're already in Moscow and you, there's a headquarters of some kind across the street from the great synagogue of Moscow on Arkhipova Street. And it's the Yom Kippur War of 1973. And just after the war begins, you meet the person who I think has changed your life more than any single human being. Her name at the time was Natasha. Tell us how you met Natasha and how ultimately Natasha becomes Avital and this extraordinary story of how the two of you actually marry. Well, uh, first of all, I tell to everybody that if you have any plans to go to prison, you first have to marry the way I did. Because really uh, our life could be a very different story uh, without that meeting. Uh, it started exactly in the first hours of Yom Kippur War, Shabbat, the 6th of uh, uh, October, 1973. We still, we, uh, Shabbat, uh, Moscow Synagogue, or near Moscow Synagogue, that's the place where uh, refused its meet, where we exchange news, where we are uh, discussing, uh, meeting with some tourists who are coming from abroad and they come there. Uh, and of course, KGB tales uh, are also with us, for at least those who are very active, the KGB people are near us. So in the first hours of war, we still don't know. There are some rumors, something is happening, but it's uh, like uh, nine or 10 in the morning of Moscow, comes some very tall young uh, man, very beautiful biblical uh, young man, very tall, two meters, uh, um, and he asked that he heard on BBC that there was demonstration of those who want to go to Israel. And he wants to join these demonstrations. Who can help him? And he sent to me, and I tried to explain him that uh, I can tell, uh, take him, but we have to speak quietly because KGB is just near us. But he's very tall, and so it's very difficult for us to talk. So, in the, in the end, I organized for him this demonstration, and he got immediately 15 days of imprisonment. Next week, then there is the middle of the war. We are all soldiers of this war. What, uh, I am collecting signatures, those who are ready to give their blood, to donate blood to the uh, Israeli soldiers. Of course, nobody is going to take this uh, blood, but we want to make a statement. We want to go to the statement of the world that we, Soviet Jews, want to donate blood to the soldiers. And here comes suddenly this young, beautiful girl, which looks for me like this, some southern flower, which somehow came to this 
northern city and friendly. And she asked me about her brother. Where is her brother? And I tell her that her brother is 15 days, don't be afraid and so on. And then I understand immediately that I have to make impression on this girl before her brother comes back. So I say, you see, it is our, this is my KGB tale. And you see what it is, this letter, it's about donating the blood. And I come to this KGB guy and say, are you ready to donate your blood to Israel soldiers? Give us your signature. He of course rushes away. He shouldn't even be recognized and so on. And I made my case, not to him, of course, to Natasha. And then I understand that she also is, became interested because she, I told her maybe in the meantime, uh, maybe you want to start studying Hebrew. Uh, I can organize your group of your level. Uh, uh, and, uh, what is your level? She says, and what is yours? I said, oh, I already know 1,000 words. I knew maybe probably less, but there was such a book, 500 was 1,000. She said, that's exactly my level. I want to go to your group. Later I understood that her level was 990 words less, but it means that she wanted to be in the group. So it started like this. Very quickly we decided uh, that we have to be together. But I also decided that she should not, if she can go, she should not go to risk arrest and so on. Let at least one of, I'm already refusing. Let at least her be there. And here they arrest me because Nixon comes to Moscow. And when Nixon comes, all the trouble makes us arrested. I am arrested. And she's told to leave immediately. And she, somehow she succeeds to postpone it. And then, thanks God, Nixon leaves after 14 days. I'm released. He leaves in the morning. I'm released in the evening. Next day, we have Hooper in our apartment. And morning after this, I take her to the airport and say here in six months that we'll be together. We were together 12 years later. Yes. But if, when I took her to the airport, she was speaking few Hebrew words and no English. When I met her 12 years later and I told her, sorry, I'm late. She was already the leader of huge demonstrations. She opened the doors of practically every leader of the free world. You know what, I'll tell only one episode because there are, it's, uh, there were 12 years of struggle. Please, but, please. Uh, at, in, in 1985, uh, like a year before my release, there is summit of the foreign ministers of Russia and America in Geneva. And the Vital comes there and with the help of one friend from Pentagon, she appears in the uh, press room few minutes before press conference of American delegation. So all the journalists are there. And she grabs the microphone and gives her press conference. So next day, the morning of this closed meeting of American delegation, uh, many of them demand from Schultz immediately to exile Avital because that will be like the biggest crisis between us and America. R Russians, Russians are absolutely sure that it was our provocation. How on our press conference suddenly she's coming. And they were insisting that she will be uh, that it will be clear that she has nothing to do with us. We will demand from Geneva authorities, they'll exile her. And Schultz said, don't touch her. If I'll go to prison one day, I want to believe that my wife will do the same for me. So that's exactly how the, all the world was mobilized to help to Avital. That's fabulous. Bowie, 
it's not surprising that an unusual human being marries another unusual human being. And both of you are extraordinary and you each somehow found in yourself almost a superhuman strength. And when you were in prison, Avital traveled the world on your behalf. And this is just, you know, I say this is about me, but it's not about me. This is about Avital. I am married in 1979. On my honeymoon, we interrupt my honeymoon for only one thing. Glenn Richter calls me and says, and he was one of the founders of Student Struggle for Soviet Jewry, that he would like me to interview Avital Sharansky. I say, of course. And Avital comes, she knows enough English to speak and she's on the Chaim, she is articulate, she is a moving human being. And she describes how she had no idea she was Jewish for much of her life. And then she ultimately finds out she's Jewish. And then she marries Anatoly at that point. He's not yet taken the name Natan. And now she is traveling the world very often with Avi Weiss, who was a dear friend and was on the Chaim all the time. So that People who I knew and respected told me about Avital, but I had an experience with her that was part of the change of my life, Natan. And again, this is not about me. It's about American Jewry. I was, I was arrested only once in my entire life and put in a van and taken to a police station. And that time was when I joined Avi Weiss in a protest on behalf of Soviet Jewry and Anatoly Sharansky in front of the Soviet mission in New York City. I was a, I was a minuscule nothing. I get no credit for that, except that I wanted to be there. And I represented what so many of my generation felt that somehow we were involved in a struggle for Jewish freedom, as well as the humanistic global sense of human freedom. And all of that comes out of two human beings. At that time, Anatoly Sharetsky, who I'd never met, and Avital, who had a profound impact on my life. And I don't know what you want to say, if you want to say anything that time, but I wanted you to know that story and how the woman whom you married, the impact she had on me is representative of the impact she had throughout America and throughout the world. And as you described, she ended up meeting with the heads of nations all over the country, all over the world. And lo and behold, she played a major part, not simply in your release, but in what ultimately became the opening of the gates of the former Soviet Union because she had a profound impact on the president of the United States, Ronald Reagan, who ultimately said that a certain deal with Russia was dependent upon him, the opening of the gates for the Soviet Union, specifically for you, but basically for the Jews of the Soviet Union. 
And that's part of a story, Natan, I worry is lost. Thank you for telling me, but tell me, uh, uh, it's true that my wife knew how to, uh, or succeeded to influence Reagan and uh, uh, Mitterrand and Margaret Thatcher and many others. But he, she always knew that her real strength is from student struggle of Soviet Jewry, from Glenn Richter, from Avi Weiss, from those, as KGB called, bunch of students and housewives. But so that was the real strength. You did it. And by the way, okay, the, the, one of the first times I saw you in person was at a rally in Washington, D.C. Okay, 1987, exactly 33 years ago, there was Gorbachev came to Washington yes. and 200,000 American Jews. And my children, I brought my children with me. Oh, that is very good. What concerns me is what you spoke about so eloquently. I am worried that the vast majority of American Jews who are in their 50s and 60s and 70s, they don't feel attached to the state of Israel or to the synagogue or to the Torah or to their Jewish identity. And I get an email just this week from somebody who says to me, I don't understand why you say you feel more Jewish than American. You should feel more American than Jewish. And if you feel more Jewish than American, why are you living here? And that reflects something that you've been trying to address and instill in Jews, certainly in America, if not around the world, what it means to have a Jewish identity, even if you live in the diaspora. Am I not correct that that's something you have spent, you have devoted time and energy to? I uh, I try to explain again and again, and leave it again and again, uh, in all my parts of the life, in prison, in the government, in Jewish agency, that if you really want to be universalist, meaning to, to improve the world for everybody, you must have a lot of strength, a lot of energy, and there is no other source of this energy. You're blessed to have a lot of energy which you can get from your history, from your people, from being part of this great uh, family and the great struggle. So yes, there is a deep connection between our tribalism and our universalism. And if you really want to be good American, liberal American who believe in uh, pursuit of happiness for everybody, you should better be connected to your Jewish identity. That help, will help you a lot. Okay, you talk about a five minutes in front of the Kremlin where you say it was delicious, triumphant, boundless five minutes and they were all mine, you write, because you knew at that moment you were going to be arrested for, for a very serious capital crime for which you could be executed. I want you to tell our audience about that five minutes and what happens to you after that. Well, uh, there were many times these five minutes, you, but you have to understand why they were so important. We speak about five minute demonstration with the slogans, freedom to prisoners of Zion, let us uh, give us visas to Israel. Uh, you, I was loyal Soviet citizen double thinker who is afraid to say what he really thinks. 
And very quickly, in a few months uh, after crossing this red line and speaking to my boss, I'm becoming the activist of Soviet Jewry movement and then it's the spokesman of this movement. So the highest moment of this activity, and there is a lot of activity of collecting information, you're meeting with the journalists. The highest moment is when you 10 people go on this demonstration. Why only 10 people? Because the more people know, the more chance that KGB will know in advance and there'll be no demonstration. Why only five minutes? How long you can stand in, on the Red Square or in front of Kremlin with such slogans before you'll be arrested? But this moment, you feel there are no more borders anymore. You, real, you speak to all the world what you really think. And you feel that all the Jews of the world are behind you. It's so, well, I was spokesman of moment. So I had to make sure that there is at least one journalist who KGB does know, but at least one journalist knows in advance. And there was, it, we didn't have uh, internet. It was, to, it could take months to pass this information to the journalist who lives in the building near you, but it's uh, controlled by KGB that he will know the date and the time and he will come and you know that now you'll be arrested and your friends will be arrested and you don't know who of us will get a fine and who of us will get five years in Siberia. But you are absolutely sure that hours after we are arrested, BBC and the Voice of America, the Radio Liberty and of course Call Israel, they all broadcast to the world that 10 Jews were arrested only for their desire uh, to, to uh, go to Israel and their fate is unknown. And next morning, and it really had to be next morning, thousands and thousands and thousands of Jews will go on their demonstrations and will phone to, uh, call to their senators and congressmen. And the governments will call uh, Soviet ambassadors. And the Senate will prepare a resolution linking the most important Soviet interests with our fate. That's how it worked. And, and you feel that you're in the center of this, and that all the Jews of the world are behind you in this demonstration. That was the moment of triumph, the moment of, of victory. And of course, it was also the moment that you, you don't know what happens to you in one hour, but you do know that in the end, it will be victory of our people because now we are free people and we are, uh, and we are big family. Okay, so it's in... March of 1977, you're 29 years old. I don't think you've turned 30 yet. And at that point, you are arrested on the charge of spying for the United States. This is not the first time you've been arrested, but is the most serious charge against you. And you describe how one of the things they that this is a charge in which they could actually execute you with a firing squad. And you were... Yeah. Going off to prison, you, you write a letter to Abital. There's this phone call, which I referenced at the beginning of the program. And you describe the, the conditions in which, under which you lived. And we've never had a chance to talk this way before. And one of the things that I've always wanted to ask you, how in the world does a person survive that kind of isolation and prison term, especially when there's the fear of execution being held over your head at any time. 
And yet, Natan, when you read your book, Never Alone, it sounds like you had a certain bravado and that when you were interrogated by the KGB, you even made fun of them. And that even though you spent 405 days in this kind of, what, what in America sort of like, um, you know, solitary confinement. And in your book, there's a picture of the room you had to live in. I said to myself, you know, how does a human being, in this case, how did you, how does a person survive that without losing all hope and without ultimately, you weren't fed hardly at all. At one point you go on a 105 day hunger strike, which is a separate story. But I'm asking a larger question. The larger question is, how does somebody survive? How did you survive 12 years, ultimately in a gulag after a show trial? And how do you survive? You're not allowed to communicate with any of your family. You're not allowed to communicate with Avital. You're not, a, and you, when you get us, when you're able to communicate, you do it by some fabulous fourth Morse code message where you send a message to another prisoner who's about to be released. And so it sounds like you're fighting the whole time. And I'm asking you, I'm an American Jew who never had a hard day of, of his life compared to what you've lived. How in the world does a person, how in the world did you survive as well as you did? Okay. I spent nine years in prison. I was sentenced to 13. I was separated from Avital for 12, but in prison itself, I spent nine years. Now, what you call solitary confinement, I spent at least five years in solitary confinement. And uh, in fact, I, I didn't suffer from solitary confinement itself, but I spent 405 days in the punishing cell, which is very cold place and they take away all the warm clothes and uh, uh, three pieces of bread and three cups of water a day and no furniture, darkness, nobody talked to, them. and you have to uh, not to become crazy uh, physical. So that is your question, how you survive in these conditions? I have to say, I really was lucky that there were few, if I was loyal Soviet citizen put in these conditions, I will t accept any compromise that KGB uh, proposes because save your life, that is the, the highest value. But I had this five years of free, living in freedom, enjoying uh, freedom, For being in the center of the struggle of Jewish people, this family, which I discovered. So when I was arrested and when KGB was explaining to me that now I'll be killed and nobody will find out what happens to me and, and the Jewish world is afraid even to mention my name and that is the end of times. And so that's why there is no sense in you not going to the press conference and all what they ask is to say that they are right and Israel is wrong and you have to decide that you don't want it that you uh, that you prefer to remain free person the way you lived the last five years uh, and not to accept compromise which will turn into again into the Soviet slave and and important thing is here to understand 
to convince yourself that everything what they're saying you is lying, that you know your people. You, you try to remember every woman, every, every housewife that you met, and of course, every journalist, and every senator, as is spoken, and to try to imagine what these people are doing now. Can they really stop fighting and being afraid, or they will continue? And it is so clear to me that all these people, all the Jewish people, uh, continue their struggle. And, uh, and, the, and my imagine, and I try, the real effort is to live in your imagined world of Jewish people. Mm-hmm. And then your imagined world was a real one. And the world that KGB was trying to describe me was absolutely uh, false. So I was lucky to know already the power of Jewish world that why never alone, that's the title of the book. But the other thing which was very important is understand that you are not, you have to not to be dependent on the things which don't depend on you. If your value, if your aim is to survive physically, it doesn't depend on you, it depends on KGB. Then they'll break you immediately, you'll be a slave again. So don't think about how long will be your life. Think that every day of your life, you'll be a free person. You now know how it is much better to enjoy this life of free person. And you can continue, that depends on you. The KGB cannot make you a slave, only you yourself, your fear can make you a slave. So, so it really was the very hard intellectual work or mental work in the first weeks, how instead of thinking that your aim must be survival, your aim must be to remain free person. And the moment you decide, and then you stop being afraid of uh, threats that you'll be sentenced to death, and of course they, every day they'll be reminding me about it. Now you feel that you can enjoy the life of the people person exactly as you did it before. And so, yes, I, was, I love to tell anti-Soviet jokes to my interrogators, because these anti-Soviet jokes against Brezhnev were very funny, but they were in the underground. And here I'm telling them that they are only uh, they they are blown from desire to laugh, but they cannot laugh. They have to express indignation. You say, to me, you see, you see, you think that I'm in prison and you're free people. You cannot laugh when you want to laugh. And I want to remain in the life where I laugh when it is funny and I want to cry when it's painful. So of course I was doing it to my to myself to remind myself. Not to retain them, of course, it was always a pleasure to retain them, but mainly to remind myself what is real freedom means. And in punishing cell, my great hobby, chess, uh, the world that I discovered as the world of freedom in the age of five. I played thousands of games of chess in my head, and you feel yourself winning all the time. And then you turn the board, and you are now improving the, the uh, other side, you have all the time in the world. You can find uh, the improvement for the black, and then you're t- finding improvement for the right, white. So the, instead of degra- uh, degradation, mental degradation, as they hope, you are improving, improving. But that's that the symbol which I took later to this book with Gil, where you are speaking that it's, uh, you are black and you are white. And when you are black, you want to win with the black. And then when you are white, you want to win yes. with the black. But you turn the board all the time. And at some moment, there is no difference. Black and white, they are all pieces. They are your allies in this struggle of survival. 
So the same with the Jews of Israel and diaspora. That's what I, we are trying to make in this book, to give the arguments uh, for, for, for Israel, why Israel is so upset with the Jews of America, and then to give the arguments or liberal Jew, why he or she is so upset with Israel. And then what we have to understand that it's, we are pieces on the same board. And uh, at this moment, we have confrontation, we argue, we're debating, we're disagreeing. We have all the right to disagree with one another. But remember, we are, uh, we are participating in the same game for our survival as Jewish people. That's amazing. Are you saying, by the way, that you never were frightened or that you never despaired? Did you ever despair during those 12 years? There were moments when I thought the probability that I will not survive physically is very high. But as I said, I really had to force myself to change the priorities. Uh, and uh, I, there was no, never a moment that I felt that I will betray my freedom, let's say, uh, or betray my people. I understand. That's, uh, I didn't know. Yeah. You have already mentioned chess as one of the things that somehow you had the mental ability to play rather complicated chess games when you were in uh, isolation. You also wrote this, until my release, my one fixed point was Avital. She kept me centered sane and focused on the community that was behind me. And then in your book, you include a prayer that you wrote that you said, which basically talked about how you were asking God for one day to reunite you with Avital. It sounds to me like Avital, your wife and your there's no way to describe the power of the love the two of you had for each other was very important in your survival. Am I correct? Well, absolutely. Uh, that was, uh, uh, as I said, the most important center of all uh, my life and all my confidence in this trial. I was sure that she will never stop and, uh, and uh, we really felt very closely for, for years without any communication. We felt that we are the same struggle together. Now, as you mentioned the prayer, I have to tell you, there is a very big advantage of being absolutely illiterate Jew as I was, because I knew no prayers, no prayers, I didn't know. So. You're inventing your own. When finally in prison, it becomes very important for you. And so during my first months of interrogations, I invented my own prayer. And each time on each holiday, I was praying, inventing or adding additional lines to my prayer. You know, it's much easier than when you have to repeat uh, this long, long books of prayers. So unfortunately, uh, you don't have this comfort of prison life in your daily lives. That's why my wife was not inventing her prayers. She simply has Rabba Chua, uh, and uh, that gave her a lot of thanks and uh, support of, and the inspiration which Rav Cook personally gave to her struggle, gave her a lot of thanks. 
How in the world did she smuggle into you a book of Psalms? No, she didn't smuggle it. Before, uh, before I was arrested, we regularly had connections with tourists who were coming and they were bringing letters and then some tourists were taking my tapes uh, to her. So they were like uh, tape uh, love letters and so on. And so it happened so, and uh, that's what might be one of the uh, things which make you believe in mystics and in, uh, in the power that nothing is accidental in this world. Few days before my arrest, when I don't know yet that I'll be arrested, but I'm already, we are feeling that it's coming. Uh, one tourist, together with a note from Avital, brings me small psalm book. And uh, it was a note from Avital that this psalm book was with me when I was traveling. I have a feeling the time has come to send it to you. And I look at this book and I open it. I don't understand anything. Not only that there are many words that I don't know, but I never learned how, where is the end of the sentence? There is no periods, there are no dots. How, how I can know whether, so I decided, look, I, there are, I have such serious struggle now. I'm in the middle of this press conference and demonstration and so on. I don't have time for this. Well, when I'll have some rest, I'll start reading. And then a few days after this, I'm arrested and they bring me the list of all what was confiscated from my apartment. And there is like a small black book, not in Russian. That's what it was also. And I realized, and then I remember that note of Vitaly, that the time has come to send it to me. And I start fighting that they'll bring it to me back. And they bring it to me back three years later, together with the telegram that my father passed away. Sorry. And again, cannot be coincidence. It's so difficult, you, you cannot be, with your mother, you cannot be with your family. All what you can do is to try to read these psalms until you understand. And then I'm trying to read and as a mathematician, so to take the words which I know and compare them with all those sentences to understand the connection. And maybe then I'll understand more than one word. And, more than... and then the first, for this ocean of words, hundreds of thousands of words, suddenly one phrase jumps on me. Here I understood that is the end, that's the beginning. When you go through the value of death, you will fear no uh, evil because thou, you, that I am with you. It's, not, uh, and then that it's like message from Avital, from King David, from Kadosh Baruhu. They all together coming to a prison. And uh, so, it could not be more powerful. Uh, so then uh, I really fought for this psalm book uh, and that was the only piece of property that I took with me to freedom. That is a wonderful story. Before I ask you to tell me what it was like the day you ultimately walked across a bridge to freedom, you have in your book a moment when you're in Israel and somebody is with you, I'm not sure why, it doesn't really matter. And at one point, this man sort of reflects and says, you know, it was such a great time when you were in prison. We were all united. And you speak a lot about both the united Jewish 
community that stood behind you, but you also describe that at some points, and you were the spokesperson for the movement for a number of years, and it turned out that American Jewish organizations all were sort of jockeying for position. And when you suggested, could we have one joint press conference? Oh, no, 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 no. Each organization felt it had to have its own press conference. And then there's this classic moment when you're gonna meet with uh, Senator Jacob Javits and Senator Abe Rivagoff, two iconic Jewish senators um, who again, only are remembered for good. And they're part of a 14 member, 14 senators are coming to um, Moscow to learn about you and the, the refusing movement. And ultimately you even have to create two meetings for Javits who wisely set this up well for you. But I want you to talk about number one, how you feel when somebody says, oh, you know, it was a wonderful time when you were in prison but they mean it in a positive way because it was so galvanizing of Jewish life. And at the same time, you experienced the pettiness of Jewish, the Jewish establishment. And I'll say one more thing and then I wanna hear your answer. The reality is that the first group to become active in the fight to free Soviet Jewry was the student struggle for Soviet Jewry at Columbia. It was done by a couple of kids. And ultimately I become good friends with Glenn Richter and I learn about it. But at that time, Natan, the Jewish establishment didn't wanna hear about it. They didn't wanna hear about Soviet Jewry. And it was the, the rebels within the Jewish community who, were the ones who were making the noise. Now, in the end, the Jewish establishment did join the struggle. And in fact, Natan, you can't meet a Jewish leader who doesn't tell you he was there in Moscow with you. And, but at the time, it took, it took time for the organized Jewish community to catch up with those, you know, Avi Weisses and Glenn Richters and and Izzy Liebler in, in Australia, who's the first guy to bring it to the United Nations, it takes time. And even in the Soviet Union, your group is discriminated against by older refuseniks who call you the Red Guard and sort of want to shunt you aside. So you have seen both sides of this coin, the enormous unity which the Soviet Jewry movement ultimately created this good time when you were in jail. But you also were privy. You saw inside the extent to which the Jewish community can fracture itself. Would you please speak about that for a moment? Yeah. Well, first of all, it was not a man, it was a woman. It was my neighbor in the Jerusalem apartment ah. who together family made Aliyah from New York and looking on me playing with my uh, five years or six years old girls in the yard. She said to me with such a nostalgic feeling, 
Natan, it was such a great time when you were in prison. Then you were going on these demonstrations and we were dating there and we were all together. It was such a great time. No, I, I sympathized here. I also feel it was such a great time when I was in prison and felt myself connected to every Jew in the world. Uh, when you're sitting in the government, it's almost impossible. You have to, to make such a big effort on self to feel yourself connected to Jews who are voting for the opposite party. So it was really very comfortable time. Now uh, about the organization. Yes, as a spokesman of our movement, I had to learn very quickly. The way for most of the refuseniks uh, was, was not such known fact. There are, that our movement is not a monolithic one. There are different organizations who are competing with one another, who disagree with other, who uh, uh, accuse the opposite group that they're betraying the Jewish interests. And, and I have to work with all of them. And I, yes, and I have to send the same letter uh, of uh, refusing to send to Jackson twice and to, to put under the risk twice to different Jewish tourists because they have to bring these uh, letters to two different Jewish organizations which are on the same street in Manhattan. So I knew it. But you know what? I learned to appreciate the good side of this because uh, you, that is what gives you opportunity to reach everybody, to reach activists and to reach establishment, to reach religious organizations and to reach secular, to those, those who, for whom this struggle is only continuation of their human rights uh, fight with Martin Luther King and those for whom it is religious obligation and it's purely Jewish struggle. And, uh, uh, and when you are arrested, when uh, uh, you think about uh, uh, how the Jewish people continue this fight, it is so not important what were, whether these people were from Union of Student Struggle for Soviet Jury or Union of Council for Soviet Jury or Coalition for Soviet Jury or conference for soldiery, or any, or 35, or other organizations. It didn't matter because for KGB, they were all on the same list of anti-Soviet organizations. And those 258, whatever, my accomplices, those Jews whom I met, who were coming from abroad, KGB has no idea to what organization they belong, and it doesn't matter. They are all part of the same struggle. So I think that was the power of our movement. And I'm reminding it all the time, and of course I reminded the book, just in order, people will not think that it was all one big organization, right? Because if they think as one organization, okay, that is something utopian. It cannot be repeated. In Jewish world, you cannot have, in today's Jewish world, you cannot have that all the Jews are the same, uh, in the same organization. You know, it never was. And all the most successful movements in our history were those, like Zionist movement, those who, included very different people belonging to different organizations. And for me, uh, it was a great lesson. By the way, then when I came to Israel, Avital passing me the uh, turn to, to now to be uh, leading the demonstrations. She gave me some lessons. And one of the best was that there are activists and there is establishment and activists, you need them because they always will be the first to start. By the way, you mentioned 
uh, I revised and Glenn Richter corrected us all, but Jakob Birenbaum, but they found them. So, uh, yes, on the 1st of May of 1964, they organized the first demonstration. And establishment, it took years to establish them to start reacting. But with, uh, Avital said, but without the muscle of establishment, you will not be able to reach anything. So make sure that you, your first uh, uh, soldiers are activists, but in the end, the idea is to, to make the establishment join. And by the way, that's exactly how the demonstration in Washington, in which you took your children, was organized. When I proposed this idea, establishment said, no, no way. But then when you go to the activists all over the America, everybody wants it. And in the end, the establishment says, if they want, we have to do it. Mm -hmm. And when they, it's really, it's unbelievable organization of hundreds of airplanes, trains, buses, thousands of cars, logistic operation, activists could never do it. But, uh, but uh, that's why you, you, you need to, to, to use everybody, but also, also it's very important to remember that success of the movement is not in turning everybody into one party. If then I would decide that our aim is not to fight Soviet Union, but first let's make conference of surgery, council for surgery, coalition for surgery, student struggle to be united in one organization, we should still be there. And Soviet Union should still exist. So let's don't mix the fact that we have many competing organizations with the fact that to be one family, to continue our journey together, that's higher priority. Natan, do you believe there is a real God who does things like brings Natasha Avital into your life, in some way chose you, in some way moves history? Or is whatever sense you have of God one where the divine somehow inspires people like you and Avital and the Birnbaums and the Richters and the Holines and the Weisses and all the people who do good and the Martin Luther Kings as well. Yeah. It, well Look, I, I tell you what I wrote in one of the few letters which reached uh, my wife or my mother and then my wife from prison, uh, because of course the Vital was Hazrabach uh, and the religion gave her, uh, Judaism gave her a lot of strength, the feeling that she is uh, working in the grand design of Kadosh Baruch Hu, and it is a big struggle. And then I wrote, after thinking a lot about it, I said, you know, in the end, I don't have the answer whether. God chose us as a people, or we chose God. But the conclusion is the same, that the moment you decide that in the image of God created people, and you have to keep yourself on that level of the, that you are created in the image of God. And so all those values of the uh, human rights, of the value of, of the life, of uh, uh, this journey through history, defending all this, uh, ideas of one God, of mo one moral uh, principle, and of the, uh, the what makes human being different 
from all the other creatures, the moment you accept it, you know, it doesn't matter whether God chose you or you chose God. That's how I feel, of course, uh, that's, uh, I mean, things differently. I yeah? love the way you say, it. and it's obviously there was a partnership which was fortuitous in a historic manner. You mentioned human rights, by the way, and there's a difference between a refusenik and a dissident. And a refusenik tends to refer to somebody at that time in the form of, so it was a Jew who was refusing to give up Jewishness. And who was refused? No, the Jew who was refused by authorities yes. to go to his Okay. And, and becomes activists fighting for the rights of Jews to go to who wanted to change the system. Yeah. Okay. And at one point you describe in your book a sort of dialogue you have, and I don't know his first name. I don't know. All I know is this name, Volodya, who basically sees the movement in a different way and believes that ultimately much more attention in the former Soviet Union should be placed on Jew educating the Jews of the former Soviet Union who are going to live there about their heritage and their culture, as opposed to the political struggle to free the Jews from the Soviet Union. And ultimately, you describe how there's, it wasn't, doesn't seem that there was tension between you, but it was a different philosophical view. And then when you become head of the Jewish agency, and you personally begin to devote your life to educating and instilling a greater sense of Jewish identity and, and a connection to Jewish culture and a connection even to Torah. You write that Volodya gets in touch with you and says to you in essence, ah, Natanya, finally get it. Speak for one moment to me about that, that dynamic, the difference between the movement to save Soviet Jewry, qua Soviet Jewry, as opposed to a more general cultural concern, which then runs into the humanitarian concern of the general dissident. Okay, first of all, I have to make, uh, to clarify, there was differences between Jewish movement and dissident movement. And the fact that I became the Jewish movement wanted the Jews will be able to have access to their Jewish identity and go to Israel. And this is the moment where those who wanted to change Soviet Union, like Sakharov or Solzhenitsyn and so on. So I happened to be in the end involved in both movements and be spokesman of both, uh, to some extent of both movements. And I, there was a lot of pressure from Israel and from some distance that you cannot be both. You have to choose, are you universals or you are tribalists? And I thought it's a mistake that there is natural connection. I write about it in the book. The very different thing is disagreements or different streams inside Jewish movement. And here really also not to think that we were monolithic, that while American Jews are different organizations, we were one. It wasn't so. There are different people with different priorities. And at some moment, it became very passionate and very dramatic when KGB is watching you and here two groups cannot agree with one another even to meet in one room. But at that moment, I didn't, 
I felt instinctively that we need both, but I was part of the political group and I didn't think that it is, our disagreement is so meaningful. It goes from Hadram and Ben-Gurion and to our days. Uh, and in fact, both groups are right. Simply at some moments in history, political activi activism is more important, like the moment you have to decide that you are creating the state of Israel or the moment we decide that we go on the demonstration. At some moment, cultural work or the building identity work is more important. Uh, and uh, uh, to understand that with all the disagreements, we are two parts of the same family and the same struggle, that was one of the ends. And, uh, and that's why I take this idea, which I first, or this divide, which I first met uh, there, which went through all my activity for these 40 years. Beautiful. Okay, so tell me, what was it like for you? And you describe how nobody came to you one day and said, Anatoly, you're being released. But they did things with you and you were saying to yourself, this, the only reason this would happen to me is if I'm being released and then you were sort of reluctant to believe it. And then finally, you understand you are going to be released. They never say it to you, it sounds like. And then you're on a plane and ultimately you walk across a bridge. It is televised for the world to see. I remember it as if it were yesterday. And you know, Natan, I really didn't have a, a, an understanding of who you were and I didn't know how to imagine you physically. And here I see someone with a certain kind of almost bounce in your step, walking to freedom after nine long years in prison. So I'm asking you, what were you feeling? What was that like? to have endured, and then here you are set free. What was that like? So that was like the best of my dreams, much more, even much more fantastic. It was uh, practically, it was difficult to believe simply. <clears throat> you're taken from Soviet prison, you're given all these uh, civil clauses, which is all very big on me. You're brought to Berlin, only the airplane, after you understand my son, you understand that we had to cross the borders already so many hours, we are going to the West. And then they declare you that, uh, I, you say, well, are you hijacking me? And only me and four KGB men and the huge airplane. And they say me that special decision of Soviet government for very bad behavior, which is not worthy of Soviet citizens. I'm deprived of Soviet citizenship and I'm exiled from Soviet Union. So that is the moment I still think maybe it's a dream, maybe I see it in my dream, but I make my statement and then we land and then uh, American ambassador uh, takes me from the Eastern Berlin to the Western Berlin. And, and I say, ask him, where is my wife? My dream, it must be wife. He says, oh, you see, there is a lot of journalists. So she's not here. She's in Frankfurt waiting for you. I'll take you 
by the airplane to the Frankfurt, they will see over. And I said, and where is the border? He said, this line is the border. And then I jump, I said, freedom, and I jump. But what happened, they in prison gave me all the big clothes, but they didn't give me the belt because it was still prison. So they gave me some small rope. And when I jump, the rope breaks and I catch my pants on the very last moment. So whenever I ask, what is your first thought when you enter the freedom? How not to lose? Don't lose your uh, but, uh, Yeah, don't lose. So I'm coming to Israel, no, to Frankfurt. I see Vital. I say here, sorry I'm late in Hebrew. It took me time to, to prepare this phrase in Hebrew uh, while I was traveling with the American ambassador. And then we go to the small airplane to Israel. It's all the same day. And then the door of the airplane opens and she says, that is our prime minister, Shimon Peres, and this is our foreign minister, uh, Itzhak Shamir, and then there are chief rabbis and so on. And then we go with the Vital to the Kotel. There with all the people are celebrating. And I touch the stones, I get my psalm book, the only piece of property that I succeeded to bring for me. And I say, Baruch Matir Asirim, and I read this uh, 23rd psalm and the 30th psalm, and all those which are making me so excited. Afraid. I'm afraid it's all the dream. You had to say one day you move from KGB and you meet your wife and you are in Israel. And I don't let Vital's hand go. I keep her and then for days and days I couldn't sleep. I had some strange feeling if I fall asleep, I will wake up somewhere else. So I really, but that is this feeling of that you're taken straight from hell to paradise. And when you're in the paradise, in the Shamayim, in the uh, up in the heavens, you can only go down. So now it's already about 34 years that I go down and I'm still in the paradise. It's much more realistic paradise because you can see it better. There are a lot of things to change, but it's our paradise. That's how I feel. Oh, that is so beautiful. We only have a couple of minutes left. So your book is divided into three parts your history as a leader of the refusenik movement and the fact that you ended up in prison and you call it prisoner. And then there's a large sec section. You were nine years in prison. You were nine years in Israeli politics. Section, section, two, yeah. right. so section two is about your life in those nine years. And maybe some other time you'll come back and we'll just talk about that section. And then your third section, which is about your nine years as the head of the Jewish agency. In my mind, you're talking here about your connection to and your concerns for the Jewish people. And in your book, you write, diaspora Jews are Israel's cherished partners. And I wanna know from your experience, both in government and then more so, nine years in the position of heading the Jewish agency, where you devoted yourself to building bridges between the diaspora and Israel. 
Do you think that that's how Israelis view diaspora Jews as the cherished partners of Israel? Well, look, uh, the, uh, usually we hear the voices of those who speak most loudly and the rule as extremists. And that's why in our dialogue, the most popular word is betrayal. They are betraying our state or they are betraying our values. And that's I hear all the time. And that's why I go back again. I am really lucky that I started from this uh, zero ground position, no identity and no freedom. And then I uh, uh, discovered this and I discovered the power of Jewish solidarity. And then I'm in prison where I feel myself so connected to all the Jews of the world. And this feeling of connection uh, helps me then to go through government, which was definitely the most difficult from all those nine years, nine years, nine years. The most difficult was to live with this feeling of unity when you are in the government. And then nine years uh, in the uh, Jewish agency where again, like in prison, I start enjoying being part of all the Jewish people. So uh, uh, it is, uh, for uh, I decided to write this book exactly because in the last years of my being in Jewish agency, and with the, all, by the way, disappointments, like I described Kotel crisis or Iranian crisis and how it really helped to distrust between two sides. Uh, but I was really concerned by this debate, are we diverging or converging? Are we one people, not one people? And I thought that I have unique perspective. I can look on this from three different their dimensions, directions, and you know, in the, uh, in the drawing, if you look at the, in order to see all the uh, subjects, you have to look uh, on three axes, different axes, and then you can understand what's happening. So I can look on this unity of Jewish people from the point of the prison, from the point of the government, looking on Jewish people, and from the point of Jewish agency, looking from Jewish people on the government. And then when you compare, you can really understand that with all our disagreements and with all our strong accusations, uh, and uh, we, we do want one thing, we want to continue our march in history together. Uh, and, uh, but for this, uh, what is really very important, that's, this book is about it. Try, don't, don't agree with the other side. Mm -hmm. it, it is, there'll be disagreement but try to understand their argument. And when you start listening to their argument, you understand that behind their argument is their concern about whether we can continue our journey in history or not. And then the moment you understand that their concern is similar to your concern, but their priorities are different. The, the conditions of life are different. Then that's the beginning for this understanding and feeling that, of course, we are not diverging. Because not not all of us want to be part of this march, but most of us, most of those who think about themselves as Jews, they do want to continue being part of Jewish history. Mm. And we we have all the reasons that we ought to feel how powerful we are when we disagree with one another, but when we listen to one another and try to make effort how we can make the next step together. By the way, you referenced this, and again, we, we don't have time to do it in detail, but 
you helped broker the Western Wall compromise at the Kotel, where there would be a third section of the wall built up and beautiful that would be an egalitarian section so that if one wanted to pray just with men, you could do that. If you wanted to pray just with women, you're woman, you pray with women. But if you were part of American Jewish life and you were part of Jewish pluralism, the Jewish pluralism of America, there would be a place where you could go and you could stand with your wife and your wife could read Torah and have a bat mitzvah as well as your son having a bar mitzvah. And you were the you were a major force in the compromise that seemed to solve a problem with this third section of the wall. And at the last moment, that deal, that compromise fell apart. And I've always wanted to ask you, first of all, do you really understand why it fell apart? And how did you feel when it fell apart? There is a whole chapter in this book about how this negotiation started, how they continued, how they successfully finished with the decision of the government, which I believe sooner or later will be implemented, and how then it failed. And Bibi Netanyahu, by the way, uh, is get, getting a lot of credit and compliments in my book. He really was among the unique Israelis who were helping to Vital when establishment in Israel had doubts about it. And he was a unique prime minister in, uh, in uh, dealing with Iranian threat when nobody even thought that it was such a threat. And he did a lot for economy, but, and he asked me to negotiate this compromise. And he helped me through four years of negotiations to, to save it. And then he betrayed it. And the, the moment he felt that, and he wanted this compromise very much, but the moment he felt that his coalition is in danger, for him, that was sacred. Everything to save coalition and he betrayed. So I have the most harsh words about my friend and great leader Bibi, I save for this chapter. Uh, nevertheless, I try, the moment I say some very critical words about Israelis vis-a-vis -vis Jews of diaspora, I immediately turn the ch chessboard and show how Israelis had all the reasons to be very upset with the Jews of diaspora as at some moment of this real desperation, Bibi told me. but. Don't you see that they really don't love Israel? I said, are you crazy? They, Israel is the base of their identity. No, he said, they love Israel, which exists only in their minds. But the real Israel, which has to fight uh, Iran, and they don't understand it. And they prefer to be nice to their president than to the needs of our security. So it is. Uh, he was at that moment believing that they are betraying him. And they, at this very moment, believed that he is betraying them. And I have to say, uh, this, uh, the Kotel is part of bigger problem that uh, for most of the Israelis, this uh, uh, pluralism in religion means simply to find nice way to be assimilated. For most of those who go to these pluralistic synagogues, that is the way to stay as Jewish. And that's one of the uh, 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 gaps in understanding and a lot can be done, and we did something in the Jewish agency, but a lot can be done to build bridges and to understand better one uh, another. But 
this crisis, which really was a crisis, and I believe that the compromise which we developed will be supported by overwhelming uh, number of Israelis, but we need to overcome some of the difficulties of the coalition uh, for this. Uh, and no less was serious crisis of, around Iran, when so many Israelis felt that how it can be that American Jews are not with us on this issue where there is no left and right. But it only reminds us how we should not be in a hurry to accuse one another in betrayal. And that was the moment really when the word betrayal was, you betray our state or you betray our Jewish values. But we have to try to understand for a moment what makes the other side to choose this position and what we can do to convince them to change this position a little bit towards us. So, so right now you're being seen by Jews throughout America and in, online throughout the world, but especially for the Jewish community of America. What message do you want them to take away today at this very moment in your own journey? What do you wish American Jews understood and did at this point in time? Well, uh, in the more general terms, because we are speaking about centuries, uh, remember always that if you want to change the world for the better, and every Jew, you're not really Jew if you don't want to see Tikkun Alam, to see the world better place. Uh, the only source of the energy to do it is your own identity. But that's very general. As to specific to this moment in American Jewish history, I tell stop arguing which anti-Semitism is more dangerous on the left or on the right. It's such a stupid debate. Uh, uh, finally, we have definition of old anti-Semitism and uh, uh, new anti-Semitism. And if you're on the left, you have to fight anti-Semitism on the left. If you're on the right, you have to fight anti-Semitism on the right. There is no sense in you being the left all the time criticizing uh, the uh, people on the right that they are anti-Semites. It will not help. They, they only get more votes when left criticize the right. It will not help if you on the right all the time saying, no, look what is happening in the universities with the left, how anti-Semitic they are. You're right, but it will not help. Fight with anti-Semitism in your own camp. And Jews have a lot to do with, with the fight on anti-Semitism. That's something that united us for centuries. Suddenly now you're divided because you, you think that you have to fight uh, the anti-Semitism on, on the other side, anti-Semitism on the rise. At this very moment of history, anti-Semitism is on the rise in America. And the only way to be successful in defeating is to accept that your role is to fight anti-Semitism in your own political camp. Wonderfully said. I thank you so much, Natan. You have written with Gil Troy a marvelous, marvelous book. I believe it should be a part of every Jewish home library. Anybody will read, it's, a, it's beautifully written. It's an easy read. It's a fabulous read. And while we've done a lot of this book, a lot of still to done, I hope that at some point you will let me contact you and we'll deal with some of your issues 
that you raised that we just didn't have time to address. As you told, you were very patient and kind in telling me your story. And it's one that I've wanted to hear and I wanted the opportunity to ask you questions and you were patient and you've answered every one of them. I am most, most grateful. I send my love through you to Avital. Both of you have changed my life as you've changed the life of countless Israelis and American Jews and Jews all over the world. So I wish you only kol tuva in all the future work you do. And at some point soon, I hope we'll have a chance to speak again on L'chaim. Thank you very, very much, Thank Natan. Thank you. And again, wishes of uh, a lot of health from Jerusalem. Thank you, my friend. Natan Cheransky, an extraordinary hero of modern Jewish life, who's been at the center of Jewish life virtually the last 50 years. And he continues to make an invaluable contribution to world Jewry. And together with Gil Troy, he's written a marvelous memoir that should be part of every Jewish home library entitled Never Alone, Prison, Politics, and My People. As always, I invite you to be in touch with me with any thoughts or comments you may have to any of the ideas expressed on this edition of L'Chaim. Please email me at rabbigolub at jbstv.org or you can write me at Post Office Box 360, Stamford, Connecticut, 06904. And remember, this edition of L'Chaim, like all, are now available on the L'Chaim podcast. And so until the next time, I'm Mark Golub. L'Chaim, my friends, to life. L'Chaim is a presentation of Jewish education in media. We would be pleased to send a complimentary DVD of this program to anyone who wishes to support JBS with a tax-deductible gift of $36, double chai, or more. Simply visit the JBS website at jbstv.org and click on the Donate button to make a donation by PayPal or your credit card. And please indicate the program for which you would like a DVD. Or you can send your tax-deductible check to JBS, Post Office Box 360, Stamford, Connecticut, 06904. Or you can call the JBS pledge line at 833-MY-JBS-TV. That's 833-695-2788. And again, please remember to indicate which program you would like to receive with our compliments. We thank you for your kind support.